Hey, it's Guy here. I know a lot of you have been asking about our live shows happening this summer. We have one more happening in Seattle in mid-September, and tickets for that event will go on sale soon. We will let you know when they do go on sale. You can follow us at How I Built This or at Guy Raz to find out when and when they're available. You can buy them at nprpresents.org. Okay, here's the show. Weren't you getting stressed out that somebody somebody else is going to beat you to the punch and, and do the same thing? I think that certainly comes to mind. But I think there's also, like, we couldn't have tried to go any faster. There was just not that much was in our control. Hmm. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of influence. We didn't have a lot of connections. So we were moving as fast as we could, and, and that's kind of as, that's as much as you can do. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Perry Chen built Kickstarter, and with it, a culture of crowdfunding ideas that might have never gotten off the ground. You know, there's a kind of mythical narrative around startups, especially if we're talking about tech startups. And it goes something like this. Founder has an idea, then founder recruits some friends, then friends sit in a room and start writing code, and then they try to get the app or the website out to the world as fast as possible, and then it just explodes. It blows up. Millions of customers sign up, and investors start beating down the door. But today we have a somewhat different story. This is the story of Kickstarter, and it did, of course, start with an idea. But it took eight years before that idea became a reality. The three co-founders did build a website, but none of them knew how to code. And they spent years refining the concept before anything even went live. And they were working with a very small amount of money. It's a path less traveled. It is a much less likely to succeed. It's not how I would recommend anybody attempt to do this. This is Perry Chen, one of the co-founders of Kickstarter. Perry grew up in New York City, but he went to college in New Orleans where he was really into the local music and art scene. And after he graduated, he came back home to New York. And like a lot of college graduates, he really didn't know what he wanted to do. But he knew one thing, he needed to find work. I came back to New York, and at the time, I had been DJing a bunch in New Orleans, and I had started to work on my own music. I applied to some record labels, like, you know, send my resume to whatever the worst job they have is where you, like, you're just stacking CDs on a shelf. Yeah. Like, you're opening boxes, and you're stacking CDs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, I never heard back. And so that that just didn't happen. I don't think I had any idea. And then I heard from somebody that they said that uh, a guy we knew at school was looking for warm bodies. (laughs) To do what? To, of all things, day trade. Did you know anything about the stock market? Nothing. Nothing. He just needed people to, what, to show up and to, like, click buttons? Yeah, you know, I think at this time in early 99, it was kind of wild times in the stock market. Yeah. And so I went down. I talked to him for 10 minutes. (laughs) He He had, like, an office in Manhattan? No, it was, like, a large room. You know, it was like an open floor. People were dressed in, like, jeans and T-shirts, mm. you know, mostly guys, mostly under 40. And, uh, you know, he talked to me, and he's like, okay, fine. You know, he's like, 
you come in, you know, we'll train you for five days. <laughs> then you just go trade. We'll put a small amount of money in your account. You just trade. You know, there's no clients. You're not selling anybody anything. It's just this guy's money. Wow. He's like, if you do well, you know, you'll get some of it. And if you don't, just don't worry about it. And then, you know, that's it. Yeah. You know, they were like, you'll get, it was something quite modest, like $2,500 a month, you know. I mean, listen, it was, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I was like, sure. And what? What happens? Well, literally, you just get set down in front of a computer, and you're just sitting there by yourself, and you can just buy or sell stuff. And you were basing your decisions on, like, what? On reading the Wall Street Journal? or No, not at all. I mean, it's you're buying and selling something in, in a minute or, oh, wow. you know, or five minutes you're holding it. You don't... You might not necessarily know the name of the company. It was like a combination of Mario Brothers and Surfing, which I've never done. But you're kind of looking out in the ocean, I assume, and I see a wave coming. So you're like, okay, it's simple. It's a little instinctual. And I did it for maybe a little less than two years or so. And did you walk away from it with some with some cash? Yeah, with a little bit. I mean, nothing crazy, but definitely decent for somebody in their 20s. But, you know, after a while, I mean, I was kind of like, what am I doing? Hmm. You know, I'm not doing anything. I'm not helping anything. I mean, at best, what I'm doing is neutral. I mean, I'm not selling somebody on anything. So the traders like to think that they're providing liquidity, like yeah. some great service. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's you're doing nothing. You're shuffling some numbers from one computer to another. So, yeah, I decided to go back to New Orleans. It's much cheaper than New York. My intent was to just kind of really focus on working on music, to get better as a, as a producer, as a composer, and kind of pick up jobs here and there if I needed it. Did the idea of Kickstarter come to you at that time? I think so. I think it was, I always say late 2001, early 2002, because to be honest, you know, I can't, I can't fully yeah. remember. But, you know, in New Orleans, there's Jazz Festival. It's kind of one of the two big moments right. of the year, that, right. you know, other than Mardi Gras. So I wanted to throw a show. Um, where I was going to bring in these these two electronic artists from Austria, Kruder and Dorfmeister. So you thought you'd fly them from Vienna to New Orleans and have them do a gig? Sure. I mean, you know, the hope is that, though, they would just happen to be in Mississippi. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, I mean, I was not an event promoter, so this is all just kind of on the fly. Hmm. Um, but it didn't happen, and um, it just kind of bothered me. You know, why is it that I would need to come up with the money and make this decision that this thing would have enough people come. I, I thought, what if the people that would want to come to the show could have a say in that? And if enough people could do that before a certain point, then the show could happen. And if not, then it doesn't. So that that was it. That was the beginning. And, and uh, what I remember most is that, like, I would get ideas all the time. And, and you know, but within a little thinking, you, you kind of find the fatal flaw. Yeah, right. And uh, so what struck me most about it was, like, that I couldn't find that. Hmm. So, and it's, so it stuck with me. And so I kind of had this feeling. I was like, this, is, this may be something. Now, after that feeling, I was like, okay, cool, and back to regular life. Music and being in New Orleans and, you know, riding my bike. And, you know, you have a, it's a good life. Did you ever, like, see your friends from high school or, or college, uh, you know, go off and, and start like careers and like whatever, like law or finance and think, yeah, you know, maybe I should I should do, go into a career. No, I mean, you know, what I felt was I'm living in New Orleans. I'm working on music. 
This is why people work for 35 years and retire, so they can move to New Orleans and work on music. <laughs> so am I jealous of my friend who works 70 hours a week? No. Hmm. <laughs> All right, so you are, so you're in New Orleans, you're doing different things, um, you had this idea that sort of comes and goes, and I guess around 2005 you move back to New York, right? Yes, exactly, in May of 2005. What was the reason why you moved back? I think it was a lot of things. I mean, I think that partially because I was moving away from music a little bit, I was kind of fighting with it. You know, I, I think a lot of times when you have an idea, right, and you kind of put it on the shelf of your brain, somebody will say something at certain points and it'll remind you. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what happened. As I was getting close to, probably in the final year of New Orleans, as I was getting close to coming back to New York, maybe even a year and a half, I think it kind of came back in a more practical way. Hmm. I, I knew that I was going to pursue Kickstarter. You knew that you were going to pursue this idea, that it had come back to you? Yeah. Um, part of the reason being, too, is that in New Orleans, it would have been pointless at the time. You know, I don't know of any tech community that was there in the early 2000s. It might have been, but certainly I wasn't connected to any of it. So, yeah, it was my plan A when I went back to New York. How did you meet the guy who would eventually become one of your co-founders, Yancey Strickler? Well, I got a job working at a restaurant in, in Brooklyn that I actually used to, you know, used to love. You were a waiter there? I was a waiter there, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I met Yancey after I'd been at the restaurant for a little bit. He was working at uh, eMusic at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, he would come in, we chatted a bit, and we, we were like talking about music and, and baseball, and, and then we just hung out a few times. And, and uh, probably pretty early on when we hung out, maybe the second time or third time, I, I kind of shared with him that I was working on this idea. Well, what was his, his reaction when he told him? Did he say, this is a brilliant idea? Well, it's funny that that was not the reaction. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the extreme opposite, but he, he was, you know, he's like, I'm not sure. So I don't know if my thought at the time was that we would be working together, but I, I thought it would be worthwhile to, to talk to him. And, uh, you know, as we started talking more and more about it and simultaneously becoming better and better friends, I think we, it just kind of naturally came together and decided to work together. Did either of you guys know anything about coding or about how to build a website or, or anything like that? Well, I certainly didn't from any technical sense. I cannot code and I couldn't code. But I think I had a sense of what it should feel like. I know what I, I like, I know what I think feels good when I'm on a site, but from the deep technical stuff, no, that was not my background at all. Yancey probably had been closer, but he's not a coder at all either. So what did you start to do at that point? I mean, you, you dove in headfirst into this idea, and, and what were you doing during the day? Yeah, it was headfirst. I mean, I was reading blogs on the internet by people who had started internet companies. <laughs> I was reading about it and maybe finding a friend or a friend of a friend and, you know, playing a game of telephone to talk to somebody. And I did a ton of that. And it was slow going. But, uh, you know, you can learn a lot by just kind of uh, Googling stuff. How did you get connected to, to you have a, a third co-founder, Charles Adler? Charles Adler, uh, yeah, our other co-founder. We need somebody who's a designer, user experience person um, to help kind of mock up the site. And uh, an old college roommate of mine from my friend freshman year, he's like, oh, my friend Charles moved to New York and he's doing freelance work. Put us in touch. Charles and I emailed. He came over to my house in, in Bed-Stuy the next day. And uh, 
we worked together kind of like almost every day or every weekday for a couple of months. You were hand drawing um, like what the yeah, site would look like? Yeah, there was like? some hand drawing or Charles would go into Photoshop or Illustrator and, and kind of like, you know, do some rough mock-ups of stuff and you're getting into detail like here's a button, here's a, a video, here's – this is what happens when you click this. So, you know, real in-depth – I think at the end we produced a document over 100 pages about how the site would function with zero code written, mind you. And what was it – what were you doing – who were you making this for? Were you making this for potential investors or were you just – it was just something that you guys would have? This was to make it. This was not for investors. Yeah. This was just you know, what we would use when we had the money to hire developers to, to build it. But this is critical. You know, you got to know what – you know, this is the, the blueprint. So when did you guys go to investors uh, for money? It was in 2006. Um, I had a friend of mine, and her cousin is David Cross, the comedian from mm -hmm. Arrested Development and, mm -hmm. and many other Mr. Show and, and great stuff. And so she connected us, and we went and had a drink at a bar, and I and I talked to him about the idea. And, and uh, a few months later, he invested a little bit of money, and that was our first investor. And you know, it was only two and a half more years before we were able to launch the website. And how much money did you have, like, from him and, and from your other early investors in 2006? It took us a year and a half. So from that point, probably from there to early 2008, we raised maybe $120,000 in a year and a half. So, so that was all of the money you had to basically pay for server space or whatever you needed to do to find a, a developer, a coder, all these people? That was it. Was it already called Kickstarter at that point? I think, you know, at first, like the working title for years in my mind was Critical Mass. Hmm. Because it was very much the, the mechanism of like, you know, when you reach a critical mass of support, then the thing can happen. Yeah. But, you know, I think obviously there's critical mass used in a lot of things. There's there's the, the bicycle organization and, and just it's really mechanical in a way. So... I think, you know, spent yeah. that, that grueling process, which trying to see what domain you can get. Uh, and yeah, and, and came out with this and um, was able to get the domain for pretty cheap. So tell me what the business model was from the outset. Uh, the idea was exactly as you see it today, which is to charge a, a small fee if and only if the project was funded. So, you know, if, if projects didn't get funded, you know, there's no listing fee. So... Uh, we would get nothing. So, um, so you you would have this platform. People would put their projects up. If it's funded, you guys get a cut. What's the percentage cut? Five percent. So so Kickstarter would get five percent. If it's not funded, you would get nothing. We would get nothing. Yeah. So what's interesting about your story, which is very different from a lot of other tech companies, is you didn't just uh, like get to a, a minimally viable product like in six months and have it up and running like this. It was like at least three years. Uh, yeah, I mean, two, yeah, two yeah. and a half, three years, but very different from uh, more classical stories where it's like a couple of friends who've worked in the industry who may have connections or they can build it themselves. I don't think any of us had a sense of where the end of the road was or where the goal was. But when, when the three of you, like when Yancey and Charles and you would, would sort of talk to other people and they say, oh, what's going on in your life? And you would say, oh, I'm working on this and I'm trying to do this website. And, and then you would see them again six months later and they say, oh, how the, how's the website going? And you'd be like, yeah, it's coming along. Do you think people were skeptical? or, or you know, they... Yeah, you, you, learn what it, you learn what it feels like to be a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a writer. You know, it's like, you're still working on the book? I'm sure people thought that. And I wouldn't blame them. <laughs> 
I mean, it was long in the tooth uh, for us, certainly, too. Weren't, weren't you getting stressed out that somebody else is going to beat you to the punch and, and do the same thing? I think that certainly comes to mind. But I think there's also, like, we couldn't have tried to go any faster. There was just not that much was in our control. Hmm. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of influence. We didn't have a lot of connections. So we were moving as fast as we could, and, and that's kind of as, that's as much as you can do. So, I mean, why do you think you guys stuck with it? Because I think, you know, people would normally lose patience, right? So was it just the connection between the three of you? You guys liked each other? Was it the idea? Or was it just luck that you just stuck it out? I think it was the idea. Hmm. You know, so many things don't have access to funds. There aren't industries or investors or whatever set up around to fund things because the market might not be sizable enough. And then even the things where the market might be sizable enough that the deal you have to make to do that, you might have to contort your idea into something that starts to not feel like your idea anymore. Yeah. Or you just happen to have money. Like, those can't be the only way that ideas can get off the ground. I think we saw it. You know, sometimes you just see it. Hmm. I guess you're not always right, but just seeing it is really critical. And so... And the web was changing over these years. You know, these were huge years for the web, you know, talking about 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. It only made us see that what we were building made more sense, mm. not less sense, that it was more needed, not less, that people would engage with it more easily with the rise of social media, with the rise of YouTube, not less. And so, and of course, there's luck involved that that was rising as we were uh, taking our sweet time getting it going. When we come back, the opportunities Kickstarter had to grow into a much bigger company and why Perry Chen decided not to pursue any of them. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. The research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair chance hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at C-H-E-C-K-R dot com slash N-P-R. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So as Perry and his co-founders continued to make slow progress on Kickstarter, competitors began to appear. In fact, 18 months before Kickstarter went live, Indiegogo, another crowdfunding site, was launched. I'm just wondering how you were able to kind of withstand the uncertainty of it all. I mean, do you your recollection makes it sound like you were just sort of like, yeah, you know, whatever. Well, this is my thing. I don't have a plan B and I want to do this. But I mean, most people, I think, wouldn't feel that way. They would feel 
anxiety about the uncertainty. I mean, do you do you think that you're just wired differently? I mean, I felt a tremendous amount of anxiety. Hmm. But it wasn't that it, the anxiety was driving me to give up. And I think it normalized a little bit over time. One of the things I noticed, not just as we we're trying to launch, but after we had launched, is that those years were so trying that I kind of had to learn to adjust to kind of like stay in the middle, <laughs> you know, not to get too high or too low, because I think that both happened. Like somebody might invest a small amount of money and we'd be like super psyched, mm. you know, or, hey, we found a developer who wants to work with us or whatever. These little things that get super excited and you're like, OK, it's all going to happen. Blah, blah, blah. And then something happens where that doesn't come and it you're falls like apart. down. Yeah. And I think that happened so many times, the ups and the downs and the, that. I think it just kind of, I just, maybe my defense mechanisms kicked in and I forced me to stay a bit more in the middle either way, right? When something that seemed amazing happened or when maybe something that seemed dire was about to occur. So what was the thing? I mean, it, it was almost three years from the time that you formed the company to the time that the website actually launched. What was the, what was the turning point? What enabled you to actually make this thing go live and become a reality? Well, I think that in some ways, we made every mistake in the book. So kind of we did that. We did one lap that way. Classic stuff like people with experience telling us, you know, you shouldn't do something this way. And us being like, well, we appreciate that. But like, you know, it'll be different for us. <laughs> and then, of course, it's like exactly what they said happened. And we're like, duh. And so I think we had got a little experience after a few years. But then there was just people. You know, we found amazing people. One of the people we met was Andy Bayo who really helped us kind of figure out what kind of technology we should be using and helped us interview the developers that we would hire. And he eventually became our first CTO. That was tremendously helpful um, because none of us could review the code that we were, that developers were on the right track. So that was, that was really critical. Those things kind of coming together. Yeah. So when you launched, the day you launched, um, how did you get the word out? How did people even find out about Kickstarter? Well, I think, you know, leading up to when we actually knew we were going to launch or believed, we had been talking to people about it, uh, telling people, you know, try to, honestly, we had to try to build up projects to launch on the site as well. So there was that outreach leading up to the launch to try to get people to fund their album, to fund their, whatever their projects were. And I think we launched with, you know, maybe five or 10 projects that first week. Huh. Do you remember what, what any of those projects were? Well, I think the first one might have been Drawing for Dollars, which maybe raised 10 or $15. You would just contribute to that Kickstarter campaign and that person would just draw whatever? You know, I can't recall whether it was that they were making a specific drawing, but as part of a reward, maybe if you gave 5 or $10, they would also make one for you. But it was great. I mean, it's amazing to see anything. I backed that project. And me and Yancey launched one with our friend Claudia that first day as well, which was called New York Makes a Book which was trying to get people to give uh, $30. And everybody who did would get a book and a page in the book to submit uh, whatever material they wanted printed on their page. And did Kickstarter make money right away, like with the fees uh, from these projects? For the first six months, I think, it was free. You know, people don't even know what this is. You know, how much can you ask them to pay money for it? Well, was it, did people notice it right away? Did you guys right away realize that it was successful or was it still kind of underground and, and in the shadows at the beginning? It was a very, slow is probably the wrong word, steady. And I say that in the sense of that it, with things on the internet, I think we sometimes have this feeling of, 
oh my God, one day just 10 million people started using it. <laughs> um, it wasn't like that. Right. You know, it was like the first week there was 10 projects and the second week there was 20 and the third week there was 30. You know, it wasn't this exponential thing, but it was really nice and steady and people got it. Um, we didn't have to go through a long period where like nobody gets this. Um, we have to like change a whole bunch of things. But it wasn't also like, oh my God, we have to hire 20 people tomorrow. Hmm. I think we're very fortunate in that. You know, we were able to hire like one person a month, maybe, maybe even less than that. So we could kind of build a culture because it's not one day you come in and the company's triple the yeah. size. Yeah. Which is, it's hard. It's hard to maintain something in those cases. So as you guys in that first year, as you started to kind of open up and allow anybody to, to raise, you know, money for their projects, what, what kind of projects were you getting? I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing depth of the human imagination, you know, like tattooing is, as well. You know, anything you can think of, films, school plays, albums, concerts, people who wanting to fund their residencies, uh, books, a lot of people doing projects who probably weren't doing projects but had ideas and this was an outlet for them, like a format for them. A lot of really whimsical stuff podcasts, you know, all kinds of things. So it was amazing to see. It was really heartwarming. I just loved it. I loved it in every way. You guys, I guess, after the launch, went out and sought money from some big names in the, in the venture capital world, like Chris Saka and, and, and others. How did you, what were the terms that you gave them? Was there, was there any, I mean, because once you do that, you start to lose control. And, and those investors, they want, you know, they want an exit strategy. They want to know how quickly they're going to make money off this thing. So how were you able to attract investors and avoid that trap? I think going into it, we knew that we weren't building this to sell this and we weren't trying to create a public company. And when we went out for investment, this was, you know, one of the first things we discussed with people. Hmm. And first of all... With Chris Saka, it was angel money. It was hmm. their personal money. Right. And that was kind of very purposeful. You know, I think that they can say, hey, cool, you guys want to do your thing and you're not going to try to eat the world. And we're down with that. And it's our own money. And it's not that much. So it's very different, I think, than a lot of venture funding. We did have one actual venture capital investor. Again, not that much money. Uh, you needed to raise money to presumably to hire people and to expand Kickstarter, right? Uh, yeah, and to you know actually get a salary, <laughs> even a modest, even a tiny modest one. Up until that, that point, point, you were not getting a salary at all. No, I th- you know I think that there was you know some sort of irregular you know three thousand yeah. bucks a month here or there for me and maybe me or Charles, but. Um, you know, again, we weren't even charging money at this point, so there was no guarantee of that continuing for very long. In in your first year after launch, what 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 was your salary? Um, it was either sixty or sixty five thousand dollars. Yeah. So, at what point did Kickstarter become profitable? I think you know the first six months, not at all, no revenue. Um, I think within a year after that, so probably within the first eighteen months. We got in the black. Wow. And you were the, the CEO? I was the CEO. And yes. how did you – I mean, I guess, you know, as Kickstarter became more and more popular, a lot of um, companies that were making sort of gadgets and tech things were using Kickstarter as a way to kind of prototype their their thing that was out there. Some companies raised millions of dollars. Um, 
I guess that at a certain point, you guys just said, enough, we're not doing this anymore. And you I think the quote that I read that you gave was, we're not a store. You kind of stopped allowing Kickstarter to be used as a platform for, for these kinds of things, right? Well, it's it's not that's not entirely accurate. I mean, basically what happened was that we created kind of additional process for product design projects. And they had more of a review process and other projects, maybe in more classical creative areas like an album, didn't. And that was really because, you know, we saw that there was a danger of people kind of approaching Kickstarter and things that were being put up there like a new product as I'm buying this, like I'm buying something on Amazon, like, oh, it's going to come exactly in the date that they're saying. And we felt that that needed to be understood, that Kickstarter is not a store. Listen, if you support a short film, you don't expect this short film to be the best short film you ever saw. Right. But when people buy like a gadget, people can have more of a consumer expectation. So we said, hey, you need to show where your prototype is at. You need to add the risks and challenges of this project as you see them. Uh, In the checkout process, we had Kickstarter is not a store, and we linked to some of our policies to let people know what did a product need to do to get here, what we might know, and what we might not know. And we want to let people be able to then make the judgment on their own, but with a little bit of context from us. Let's say a a company came to Kickstarter and, you know, said, hey, you know, we've got this cool new product like like headphones or something. And and we want to partner with Kickstarter to raise money. Uh, Kickstarter will do some promotion for us, feature the, the headphones on the homepage, drive traffic to it. And then in exchange, you know, we'll give Kickstarter a bigger cut, like like 10%. Could, could you imagine no. doing something like that? Yeah, it just, no, I don't think so. And I've probably had a request like that in the past. Mm. It's, listen, the site is open. You log on, you create a password, you know, you post your project. I think a lot of times big companies, they want to do a partnership, they want to sign a contract. That's, you know, we're like, listen, if you want to go do it, you go log on the site. But if you want, like, some special stuff from us or whatever, I mean, that's just not what we do. It's a relatively open door, but you're not any better than some young creator who's working on their first idea. This platform is built to do what you say you want to do. So, you know, go for it. How much money has, in total, do you think, have have Kickstarter projects raised? Recently, we passed the $3 billion pledge mark. Wow. So, so, yeah, it's a huge milestone. Yeah, and I'm again, I'm most excited about the money that's gone to projects that really had very little funding sources or really constrained funding sources or funding sources that would really force the creator to contort their project in a way that they might not recognize it anymore and, and force them to kind of make compromises that a lot of creative people have to do, but that are really hard. That's definitely what I'm most proud of and, and continue to be excited about. I've seen Kickstarter described as like the the people's national endowment for the arts. Some people have even described it as like the modern day House of Medici, uh, which is pretty complimentary. I mean, that's a pretty incredible thing to say about uh, about the site that you created. Do you do you identify with those descriptions? Not really. I mean, I listen. I'm I'm proud, but you know, the Medici's were giving out large amounts of money, and it was a small group. In a way, we're trying to provide a clear alternative to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Whitman had funded some first editions by having subscribers that he 
wrote their names in the first edition, hmm. who gave smaller amounts. And Mozart had funded a concerto in the same way. The Statue of Liberty, the bass was funded. They actually the, – they would sell miniatures for a dollar or larger ones for five dollars oh, wow. of the statue. Wow. And that, that funded the bass. So a lot of stuff that you see on the web is – has maybe existed in another form. Nothing new under the sun. Pretty much. You know, with Kickstarter, I think if I was telling a friend that I was working on an album and it was going to cost me some money to go into a studio to mix it down, they're not going to hand me $5, hmm. right, in a coffee shop. But if I put it up on Kickstarter and I'm trying to raise two grand to go do my mix down for my album, that same friend may give me $5. Um, there was just this friction. There was this social friction before that existed. And the model has been able to eliminate that or even put in a way that's socially positive. So it's the sentiment that people have. People want to help each other bring good and interesting ideas to life. Mm. We have nothing to do with that. We are enabling that, what we think is a good way to do that. The idea, the model of Kickstarter is just seems like a no-brainer now, right? We think about companies like Uber or Airbnb or you know, companies that connect people with other people. And, and in some ways, Kickstarter does the same thing. And you guys only take 5%, which is a pretty small amount of money. I mean, you could take lots more money. Did you ever think about going down that path? I mean, if you're going to try to make a lot of money, you know, that's almost changing the fee. It's probably not where people would talk about. They would talk about raising hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital, uh, quadrupling the size of the company and the international footprint, doing major marketing campaigns, or selling the company and making a ton of money in one shot. But I think there's also like, there's got to be a way that it doesn't have to become this kind of vehicle only for maximizing profit. Um, you know, there was a quote, I wish I could find uh, the attribution, but it was basically that if a corporation was a person, it would be a sociopath. And when you create something, you know, you wanted to share your values. That's kind of why ever since the beginning, we, we wanted to make sure to hold on to control so that outside forces couldn't drive it that way. And then two years ago, we became a public benefit corporation, which is still a for-profit company, but it means that the obligations of the, of the board and the executives and, and the company is to balance the shareholder interest with greater stakeholders including the environment and and your various communities. And that's it. That makes it, again, something more a representation of people. Hmm. But really, if underneath the mandate is, at the end of the day, make the most money for shareholders, it's, a really, it's not really a good fit for humans. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's, it portends very well for society if this hmm. is what we accept as the only way to do it. You um you you are no longer the CEO, right? No, now I'm uh, chair. And what was the story behind that? Did you just feel like okay, you know, it's it's gotten to a place where I don't kind of need to run it on a day to day basis anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think that once we were out there and things were working, I started to see that, especially since we don't want to sell, where does this go if if things continue to succeed? then it just continues. Mm. That's what we wanted. We want it to just continue. But does that mean I do this 
till I can't do this, and or I do this for thirty years, and then I write a book on leadership and like <laughs> give, hit the hit the speaking circuit. It's like, you know. So I was like, and I also didn't have time to work on other ideas I had hmm. in the arts, uh, not new companies, and so. I think we reached a certain point. I just started to see a window. I started to see, hey, you know, a gust of wind isn't going to blow us down. Um, we've got a great team here. And so this might be a good moment. Did, did you ever uh, get to see Kruderdorf, Dorfmeister after all? No, I've never. I have not. I've never seen those guys. And I, I haven't heard much. I'm sure they're still out there making music, but yeah. I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't caught up on much of it. Well, now you could do it. Now you could kickstart that show. Now I could kickstart that show. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Perry Chen is the co-founder of Kickstarter. These days, he spends most of his time at his studio in Greenpoint, New York, working on his own projects. By the way, if you've listened to the segment at the end of our show, How You Built That, we actually looked back at all the companies we featured, and at least one-third of those companies got off the ground with money raised on Kickstarter. And please don't turn us off just yet. In a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you guys are building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, Squarespace. Do you have an idea for your next big move? You can use Squarespace's award-winning designer templates to create a beautiful website or online store equipped with everything you need to run your business. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code BUILDIT for 10% off your first purchase. Hey, thanks for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And let me just say that our team actually got into an argument about this next product because the problem it's meant to solve? Well, some people didn't even know this problem existed. Like, in your bedroom, right? If you just throw a quilt over your bed to make it, then you may not get this. But if you have a duvet or a comforter, then you know the extreme frustration of trying to stuff it back into the duvet cover. It's as if you're taking a, a big pillow and trying to fit it into its pillowcase, but it's bigger than you are. And you This is Crystal Gordon from San Diego. Inside. You have to, you know, get on top of the bed, shake it so that it all fits properly and neatly and it's not all crumpled inside of its cover. And if you've and ever had to do this, you know exactly what Crystal is talking about. It is an enormous pain and it's something she had to do when she was a kid. Anyway, now that Crystal is a mom herself, she's always looking for ways to save time. And so one day, about a year ago, she thought, hey, why don't I design something that makes it easier to put the duvet back into the cover? It needed to be absolutely simple. That is standalone. You don't have to hook up any wires or any hooks and doesn't require assembly or any of that. Crystal actually has a background in aerospace engineering. But when it came to designing something to help you make a bed? I had no idea how to invent something, so I started toying with things. I, I read a book on uh, basically inventing things and bought some stuff from Home Depot. 
She bought really basic stuff there, like rope, some clothespins, and a kitchen sponge, which she literally stapled together into a kind of clamping device. That was my ultimate first raw <laughs> prototype to just test my theory of having this cushion underneath the mattress to work as an anchor and then seeing... And what Crystal eventually came up with is a flexible clamp, actually two of them, that you can use at the top two corners of the bed. The clamps are kind of like liken it to the hands of somebody else. They're your helping hand. The clamps are shaped kind of like a spatula with this little plastic gate in the middle that can hold the duvet cover in place as you push the duvet into it. And you can do this task alone in a few seconds with, with very minimal pain and time. A few months after she settled on her final prototype, Crystal found a manufacturer in Turkey to make it. She calls her invention the duvet. There's nothing like it that exists. We have no competition. Crystal's biggest challenge right now, getting the duvet into brick and mortar stores. She's been selling some of them online, just a few hundred dollars worth. So for now, she's keeping her day job at a solar energy company. And whenever she can, I've got my list of stores that I've been trying to call with nobody picking up the phone. And, you know, I need to start getting more creative, sending them like uh, chocolates, a box of chocolates or something with my card in it. If you want to read more about Duvet on our Facebook page, just search How I Built This on Facebook. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more or hear previous episodes, go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. You can also write us. It's hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at howibuiltthis. Our show is produced this week by Casey Herman with original music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Claire Breen, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Lawrence Wu. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. My new podcast is called It's Been a Minute. That's another way of saying let's catch up. Every Friday, I'll sit down with two guests, smart talkers from inside and outside NPR, to catch up on the week of news and culture, everything. If you can't stop watching the news, but you're also exhausted by doing that, this show is for you. Don't miss out. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I am here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR.